The following is an encore presentation of the original Loretta Brown Show. For more information about her show, visit ReikiOasis.com. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the original Loretta Brown Show, radio to open the heart, heal the soul, and awaken the consciousness. Happy New Year. Happy birthday, Benny. Thank you very uh-huh. much. Woo! <laughs> yeah, I got the party horns. Let's make it happen. <sighs> so 20, it's so 20, much 29, you know, something like that. Wait, is Don't... it 2029? Is that what you said? I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Back it up. Not that old. <laughs> I, I, I have a joke with my son that I'm 29 times two. Oh, uh, of course. You know. <laughs> of course. We never get older. But anyway, did you have a happy birthday? I did. I'm uh, officially 45. Uh, I feel like I'm up there looking down now. Not, not. It's not a bad thing. Just, I think that's where I'm at. Just that's where I'm at. My, my spirit level is 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 at that point. You have a beautiful light, and and Thank I think you. 45 is the new 29. Because you know we're just going to live longer and longer and longer, right? Of yeah, course we do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. A little tucks and uh, pulls here too. You know that doesn't help. That helps a little bit too. You know, just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you have to out for mine. I don't know. <laughs> oh, you don't keep even. It, not even. Keep close. it short. Yeah, right. Keep it short. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. Everybody out there, just wish Betty a happy birthday. You know, uh, I always give him some accolades because um, he does all the heavy lifting, and I just come and do the talking. Right. So well, thank you. From my heart to yours, for years and years and years on the air with you, Benny, thank you so much. Oh, thank you right back. And, you know, with all the heavy lifting, I do a lot of lunges and stuff like that. You know, I got to get, you know, ready for the show today. It's kind of like, I'm waiting for the YouTube when that posts later. Maybe we need to do a a different show, you know. (laughs) I don't know. I'm watching me on the other, uh, later down the stream. (laughs) I love my lunges. They look fantastic. I am jealous of those lunges, and if <laughs> I had more space, I think we could do that. You know, we start the new out, new year out a little bit different, right? Why not? Yeah. Let's do this. We need to yeah. spice up the show. That's you know, give right. people a reason to be here at eight in the morning. Yeah, you can't know? lose in twenty two. Let's do this. Let's go. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So anyway, I hope everybody had a wonderful holiday season. Happy New Year and. My goodness, yeah, we're launching into 2022, and I'm very hopeful about the year. I'll talk about that more in a minute. So anyway, um, let me get through the opening so I can get my wonderful guest on, and we can talk about a taboo subject. You'll find out in a moment what that is. I am the owner of Reiki Oasis, and yes, I am the original Loretta Brown. And uh, every Sunday at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, I offer a meditation via Zoom. If you want to join us, please sign up at schedule.reikioasis.com. If you can't be there at that time, I'll send you a recording. And the whole idea is just to try to give you a little, if you don't do anything else during the week, you'll have an hour that you can give yourself to tune in because this kind of quieting of the self is super important for everything from our mental to spiritual health. Uh, let's see, what else do we got going on at Reiki Oasis? And you can find out all about me at ReikiOasis.com. Always something going on. We have a Reiki One class coming February 12th. I just took a bunch of people through the training for Reiki. Um, my guides and angels are very clear. We're going to need more and more healers, more and more compassion, 
and more and more of your hearts are opening. You want to give your gifts to the world. And I'm here to say I am open to receive your gifts, right? If they're love or their goodness uh, or their cookies, right? Cookies are good. Yeah. It's kind of a random there. Who did you? Are you expecting some like, later today? I mean... It was a conversation I had with someone yesterday. Ah, there we go. Okay. All right. You know, um, I, I'm of an age that, you know, when people would come over to eat, that was the first thing mom did was like, you had to give them, you know, something to eat and something to drink. You always yeah. offered refreshment to sure. your guests yeah. and you always had, you know, Toll House chocolate chip cookies mm. and you would just put them on a plate and people would eat them. Well, nowadays, you know, is it gluten free? Is it vegan? Is it, you know, what kind of chocolate chips are those? You know, who made them? You know, it's very complicated. So um, yeah, from it's my almost heart like... to all of you. <laughs> It's like bring your own refreshments. It's B Y O R. Bring your own cookie yeah, in your pocket. Your, yeah, right. Don't, don't mind if I do. <laughs> anyway, I hope everybody's laughing. It's all about the love, and uh, you know, she, uh, you know, she could make those cookies, and I could make those cookies, and somehow what she did made, tasted better. I don't understand what the deal was, but she obviously was the ingredient. Well, because right? it was made so, with love, Loretta. That's right there. I know. Yeah. For all of those kids, give them cookies, keep them quiet, right? So anyway, uh, I hope everybody out there has fun. Now everybody's going to go by and eat cookies today. Sounds really good <laughs> but, right uh, <laughs> but, but welcome to 2022 and goodbye 2021. Um, we started this year with a very supportive new moon in Capricorn on January 2nd. The new moons are always about something new and Capricorn is a hardworking sign. So it's going to help us get stuff done. So this new moon brought in a burst of fresh energy, huh, just in time to help us set ambitious goals and to actually take action steps to get them done. Wow. The seeds that you're setting in place right now are going to grow this year. They're going to grow. It's kind of important that you know, you know that. So what do you want more of? in 2022 and what do you want less of what gifts did 2021 bring you and what gifts do you want 2022 to bring you these are the questions that i asked all the people that came for my beautiful despacho end of the year ceremony we had a lot of fun with that and it was really powerful uh, i always tell people you know it's kind of those things like i hate to just sound like i'm saying you know pat things but if you don't have a target how can you hit it right if you're just wandering around right and we are uh, involved in uh, the cycles of life and death and it is important that we show up so during the month of january we have both venus and mercury in retrograde venus is the planet of the things that matter to us in our hearts right and mercury is about communication so these planets retrograde might be making us feel a little sluggish, unmotivated, wiped out, laying on the couch. Oh, right? Yeah, it's happening. And uh, realize that, of course, these are cycles. Venus wants us to recharge our heart energy. And Mercury wants us to recharge our mental energy. And that's called the heart and the mind. And so how are they working? <laughs> are they working are they working with each other or against each other 2022 is a year of health healing 
change, starting new things, and laying a very strong foundation. So one of the big events of January is the shifting of what's called the lunar nodes. The lunar nodes indicate our personal and collective karma, and they give us really great insight into what we are working on. The north node represents where we're headed, and the south node represents our past. And you can get an astrologer to check that out for you. We've been under the influence of a north node in Gemini and a south node in Sagittarius, but now we are shifting. The north node is moving into Taurus. The direction we're going for the next 18 months will be about the state of our planet, our politics, ooh, our grounding, what it is that we're setting up for ourselves, the feelings of self-worth, our relationships with money and abundance. And it, for the next 18 months, it's going to be very important. We set a solid foundation. Taurus is uh, very hardworking, it's an earth sign, and it's at the living level of your life. So it doesn't want you to be too dreamy, it wants you to get it done. The south node is going to move into Scorpio, and that is where we're coming from. And that is going to ha say to us that we need to embrace and accept the cycles of death and rebirth that we're coming out of right now. We're in it, we're coming out of it, it's in the past but we have to embrace it so that we can be sure to lay the proper foundation that will be sturdy and stable. In other words, we do have to look death straight in the face, which also makes us look life straight in the face. Wow, what a powerful day for my guests to be here. I'm kind of blown away. You know, uh, Judith, I, I do these little astrology check-ins, but when I was doing this one, I literally got goosebumps. I got goosebumps right now because the cycles of life and death are powerful and you are bringing to us a much needed topic today and um, we are going to talk about death so please people listening you're going to want to listen to this my guest today is judith johnson phd she's an educator whose mission is to help others master the art of being true to themselves oh, she is a uh uh uh, she's a workshop leader, a mentor. She has a doctorate in social psychology and spiritual science. She's got an MBA. She's the author of a great book called Making Peace with Death and Dying, a practical guide to liberating ourselves from the death taboo. Oh my goodness, welcome to my show, Judith. I'm going to show the YouTubers your book. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I Thank will tabbies and stuff you know because oh, actually good. i actually read it good <gasps> i know reading i know what a concept i know i love reading books <laughs> and uh i you know what i've always been that way i love the smell and the feel of a book and yeah. i have a kindle but honestly there's nothing like a book yeah it's nice to be able to bend the pages and underline and all that yeah well plus i want to flip through <laughs> What's the, what's the ending, right? right. So, so Judith, welcome so much to the show. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, could you lay out a little bit of information about yourself, some background, like, like what do you do, and, <laughs> and right, and what led you to write this book? Because um, sure. you're from a different part of the country. Yeah, I am. Well, um, 
what first of all, what I do, um, my work all focuses in the field of human consciousness because it's so clear to me that how we are on the inside is what's reflected into how we behave on the outside. And so if we're a mess inside, we tend to create a mess outside. And so my work is really about helping people to break down, to identify and disconnect dysfunctional mental and emotional patterns, okay? And to learn how to reach into the desire to live really consciously and with intention about what they're trying to create in their lives. So a lot of my work is working one-on-one -on -one with individuals and also working with couples. Um, I also, um, I became involved in end of life work when I um, was thrown into the experience of my mother's end of life journey. She and I shared a home the last nine years of her life. And um, six months before her death, um, she fell backwards down a flight of stairs, cracked her head open, ended up in the emergency room. And it was a dramatic, all of a sudden, oh my God, I was thrown into 24 seven caregiving of an elderly person who I loved profoundly. And um, on her deathbed, she grabbed my wrist. Now, when your mama grabs your wrist, you pay attention. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and she grabbed my wrist and she begged me to promise her that I would write about what we learned. Because we learned so much about what it means to live in a society, to be aging and dying in a society that is in denial about death. And which thus the, the title of the book about making peace with death and dying and dealing with the death taboo. Um, and in your intro, you mentioned that we we're going to be dealing with a taboo subject. And I don't think there's anything, well, maybe there's one or two things that we consider more taboo than dealing with and talking about death with each other. Um, most people live their lives trying to pretend it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. And as you bring out in the book to that, when we don't look at that, it causes all kinds of problems. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have so many questions, really. It's such a big topic. Um, let me just start with this question, you know, because you, you've shared with us that for nine years, you were primary caregiver for your mother. And I, I have to say, wow, what a, what a tough learning ground. What are some of the challenges for those who are the primary caregivers of those that are aging? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. First of all, let me just say that it was an enormous challenge because it caused me to have to abruptly um, reset what yeah. was what were my priorities, because my priorities became more and more about keeping my mother safe, um, protecting her, loving her. Um, but along with all of the challenges, I have to say that it was one of the greatest gifts of my life to have that come forward. And we reached a level of intimacy and caring for another human being that was higher than I've ever achieved with another person. So um, I hold it as a great treasure alongside the loss and, and the sadness that, that it involved. But in terms of caregiving, I think the number one thing that caregivers need to understand is when I am a caregiver, I need care. <laughs> 
That's the number one thing, because we end up um, out prioritizing our own needs because we think the needs of the person we're caring for are more urgent and therefore more important. And so, well, I, I'll be OK. That's the constant mantra of the caregiver. I'll be OK. I'm OK. But she's not. I have to give everything to her. And that caused me a lot of problems a lot of problems. And I had to learn through example, no, 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 don't do that one again. You know, so you have to, you have to find out, you have to pay attention to what's really happening for you also and care for yourself and get the support you need. Uh, I'm really listening to what you said, you said, and I'm also thinking about, you know, some of the challenges that those that I've known through the years have, have brought to me to discuss when your mother suddenly fell down these stairs, what a horrifying thing, but it totally interrupted your life or yeah. redirected your life. And um, this, is, this is a tough question. These are the tough questions. When someone is faced with that, where they're like, look, I have to, this thing has happened to my loved one and I'm having to choose between being the primary caregiver or finding a place to put them. Mm -hmm. What What kind of, what can you say about that? Because a lot of people feel guilty. They feel angry. They feel resentful. They don't know what to do. What's the right thing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, finding yourself in the role of the caregiver, sometimes it happens very gradually. You know, it's like mom lives three miles away and blah, 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 or um, and she's going downhill. Or, and sometimes it's abrupt, like it was for me. And one way or the other, you get faced with dealing with the truth inside yourself. So are you resentful? Because you see it as inconvenient, for example. That's one of the traps a lot of people fall into. Um, when On my website, it, it's, I intentionally have a statement on every page that love is our first and our most sacred priority. Because I believe that deeply. Now, in practical terms, if you have a job that keeps the roof over your head and you don't have the time to be able to be there, I was privileged that I could make the time. I could push my life aside and be there with my mother. A lot of people can't do that. And I, this is part of the caring for yourself is being ruthlessly honest with yourself about what you can and cannot do. Um, I have clients right now who are going through this where their lives are so disrupted and yet they have families, loved other loved ones, they have work, they have you know ambitions. And how do you sort those out? Um, it's very much a matter of, and unfortunately, the practicalities of life, like dollars and cents, yeah. play a big role. Okay. Um, but number one, it does not take a lot of time to let your loved one know, I love you. And to get that message across, no matter how much time you have to be there or not be there, make sure that you find the way to make sure that that message is received and that you are doing what you can do to support them. And sometimes this means siblings have to get a, have a practical conversation about who can do what, dividing things up. Like I remember my brother took charge of all insurance forms and all the paperwork mm. and all the money stuff. And I took care of hands on. So that's part of it. Yeah. There's a lot in that. And I'm, I'm, 
I'm thinking in my head of all the things that people have talked about. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit directly about what is death? What What is the death taboo, right? I, I really want to just go straight into that. And what is unique about our culture as opposed to other cultures regarding death? What a, what a great, great question. And you've just asked about six of the most essential questions in that one question. So let me break it down like this. In my perspective, all right, our culture fails brutally um, to embrace the full depth and breadth of the human experience. And because of that, we are ill-equipped to face living and dying with profound competence and authenticity, okay? Um, a lot of that is because we are we live in a society that tells us, you know, treats death as a as an elephant in the room. And it's it's like we don't talk about it, we pretend it's not happening. I mean, look, look at the dollars we spend on cosmetic surgery alone, all the things that people do. Okay. Look at um, I mean, there's so many reasons, and let, let me I could go in 12 directions at once right here, yes. but what I want to do is give a little background about the death taboo and how did we get here? And how we got here is there are several very primary threads to think about. A lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the cultural uh, ways of being in our society come from European culture. And um, one of the things I find fascinating is if you go back to one of the key roots of this taboo dates back to the Black Plague, which was 1348 to 1352 in Europe. Half the population was wiped out by this plague. Now, one of the things that people did to mock death and to pretend that it wasn't a problem was they drew these pictures, black and white images, drawings of skulls and crossbones and the Grim Reaper, and they put them on their clothing as a way to say, ha ha, death, I'm already dead, pass over me, go to somebody else. Now, here's what's interesting. You go and do a Google search of the word death and those images some of those very same images that were done during the Black Plague still exist in our Google search of images of death. Yeah. So it's really oh. important to understand how deeply this taboo rests in our being. Mm -hmm. Okay. We are taught to fear and avoid death at all cost. We are taught to live in a mindset that is a polarized mindset of duality. Birth is good, death is bad. This is wonderful, this is awful. Embrace this, avoid that. And when we live like that, we miss half of life because when you think about it, every moment of every day, you are simultaneously living and dying. And that's one of the ironies of the human experience. Okay, um, so living in polarized thinking like that is really a big challenge. So this is one of the reasons why, I mean, my work is really about teaching people how to awaken um, spiritually, because you ask the question, you know, who are we and how do, you know, who, who died, what is death and all of that. And it's funny you bring that one out because I'm writing about that right now for my next book, um, which is called Being You, a user's manual. And um, I'm, posing, I'm posing the question, who is I? 
I mean, we all use this same word. You use the word I, I use the word I. Who are you talking about and who am I talking about? And it might, you know, it's in one sense, it's very funny because it's the same. And on the other, it is the word that we use to try and distinguish ourselves from others. I and not I. So for me in my own spiritual journey, um, this has been one of the most important pieces for me is what do I mean when I say I, who is I? And so for me, it's very much as Teilhard de Chardin said, I am a human being having a spiritual experience. I mean, I'm a, I'm a spiritual being having a human experience, not a human being having a spiritual experience. When you rest your identity in what one would call a soul or some kind of spiritual identity, it's an entirely different ballgame than when you live in your ego and personality self. When you live as I'm Judith, I have these degrees and this is the work I do. And, you know, this is how I wear my hair and all of that stuff. And I like chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. When you live in that part of your identity, it's very important to recognize that we only we can focus our attention one place or the other. And that we have to bring in the dual focus of the spiritual identity and the ego personality identity where we function. Um, my spiritual teacher, John Roger, had a wonderful description where he spoke about the mind, the body, uh, the mind, the body, emotions, and the imagination as useful tools for functioning here. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and maybe sometimes not so useful. Anyway. <laughs> sometimes we don't know how to use them very well. But when you think about it that way, it helps me remember, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not little Judith, I'm big Judith, you know, and when you look at yourself as a soul, then when you look at the concept of death, as it's experienced, and it's very interesting, if you look in our, um, in our dictionaries, the word death is described as this stopping of metabolic functions. So it is all described as a physical reality. And if that's the only way that you see yourself, then that's what death is. So if you only know yourself as the small self, death is pretty terrifying. It's like period, the end. The, yeah. the book is over. The story is done. Yeah. If you see yourself as a spiritual being, it's not so clear cut, you know? And I want to, I want to go back to what I was saying about the images. Like if, if you do a Google search, about five years ago, I think it was, Eben Alexander published his book, Proof of Heaven. And he is a, um, a, a neurosurgeon. And prior to having his own personal near-death experience, he poo-pooed all that and said, I can biologically explain all of this stuff. It doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden, he had a near-death experience. He saw the light. He saw the tunnel, all of this stuff. And all of a sudden, he, he completely shifted his focus in life. And it became kind of a technicolor life rather than black and white, if you will. And what has happened during this time is these images of near-death experiences are now coming up in Google searches of the word death. So we're no longer just looking at black and white images of, of of birth is good and death is bad, but we're getting kind of spiritual imagery that suggests that, that there's something beyond the physical death of some part of ourselves, perhaps the essential part of ourselves that goes on. So it's very interesting. So what is death? It depends on who is I. 
Wow. Uh, that is so good. We're actually going to take a station break, but Judith, this is a beautiful conversation. There's so much in that. Um, uh, for the listeners, my guest today is, is Judith Johnson, and we're talking about the taboo subject of death, making peace with death and dying. And her book is really wonderful. It's a practical guide to liberating ourselves from the death taboo, and it's practical. It really is. It's it's really for everybody. So this is Loretta Brown. We're going to take a little station break, and please don't go away because uh, we have so much more to talk about. <laughs> have you ever wanted to go above and beyond for your community? Volunteering for your local fire or EMS department is your opportunity. Join a family that will serve with you, always have your back, and train you to be the best version of yourself. As a volunteer, you will meet new people, learn new skills, and make a meaningful impact. Learn more at makemeafirefighter.org. That's makemeafirefighter.org. Energy is powerful. It's all around us, mysterious, full of potential. Directing positive healing energy to raise your vibrational rate through Reiki can change your life. Reiki master Loretta Brown has relieved stress, sadness, anger, and even helped clients lose weight, stop smoking, and end sleep disorders. Worldwide, people have sought out Reiki Oasis. If you want help with your dis-ease, visit ReikiOasis.com. Harness life's energy. Visit ReikiOasis.com today. Alternative Talk 1150. We're on your radio at 1150 a.m. We're on your HD radio at 98.9 Channel 3. So many ways to listen. We're on the web at 1150kknw.com. Streaming live audio and video as well as MP3 archives of many of our shows. So many ways to listen. And now, we're on your smartphone or tablet. Download our free app in the Apple App Store or Google Play and take Alternative Talk 1150 anywhere you go. So many ways to listen. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. The following is an encore presentation of the original Loretta Brown Show. For more information about her show, visit ReikiOasis.com. Welcome back to the original Loretta Brown Show. I'm Loretta Brown. You can find out more about me at ReikiOasis.com and, of course, on 1150 KKNW. The archives, all of these shows are recorded and archived there, we're also on Podcast One, iTunes, Spotify, and a variety of other places. So um, you can listen to them over and over. My guest today, Judith Johnson, the author of Making Peace with Death and Dying. And we're having a fascinating and I think a much needed conversation about the death taboo. Um, during the break, Judith was bringing out um, some really great information about the development of the funeral um, uh, um, <laughs> what do I call it? Uh, <laughs> industry. industry, thank you. The funeral industry and how that all came about and the sanita sanitizing of death, taking it out of the home and into a very neutral area. It's sort of like, it's like, great. Yeah. It's like, now we're not really looking at it. Could you just please continue? 
Sure. Because there's two other areas that, again, feed into the death taboo, because when you take death out of our lives and you, you take it out of our sight, um, we are we are less um, familiar with death and it becomes more scary. So along with that, we've had, um, you know, this burgeoning medical industry, medical industry with all kinds of new technologies and new pills and new treatments for everything. And one of the things that's happened there is we have started institutionalizing our sick and elderly people. Yeah. Okay. And in doing that, um, one of the problems has been there is no place or there has not been until very recent years. There has not been a place in the medical industry for death because the medical profession is all about preserving life. Let me use all my new gadgets and all my new treatments to make you better, make you better, make you better. And um, I remember one time I was in the room with um, a family and their loved one was clearly dying. OK, and he was like 89 years old. His name was Roy and he was somebody I personally loved very dearly. And the doctor came in and they said, that, you know, five of the family members were in the room and they said, doctor, you know, what do you think? And he said, well, you know, we could do this test and we could run, you know, I'd like to examine this and blah, 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 and bring in so-and-so. And one of the daughters interrupted him and said, excuse me, but don't you think it's time to bring hospice in? Now, yeah. you know, and he blustered. He was like, well, if that's what you want to do. You can go right ahead and do that. He was, a, he was insulted because yeah. for many doctors, they consider hospice or the patient dying and not having any more medical treatments, a personal failure, because that's how they're trained. And so it's, it's culturally, we are having to adapt to integrating this hospice mentality of death is normal. And there are ways to do this that are really quite loving and quite peaceful and lovely. Let's have some professional people who know how to do that. And let's turn the people over and the families over. I always say that when my mother and I, and I say both of us, when we said yes to hospice and we were smart because we did it about, I think it was about three or four months before she died. Yes. And I describe it as being abducted by angels because yes. we had a team of people. I mean, up until then, I, who knew nothing about what I was doing, was responsible for caring for my mother. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, well, my life had been interrupted and all of a sudden I'm doing this. And it was very scary to be responsible and incompetent, you know. Um, and and so bringing in hospice, all of a sudden you have this team of people who know what they're doing. They understand death as normal and they help you. They help not only the patient, but the loved ones. That was a, a remarkable thing. They got involved. For example, there was a, a family drama in my my family uh, be, with me and one of my siblings and that I'd never been able to resolve. And it was a heartbreak to my mother. And the hospice team got involved to try and resolve that problem, to bring peace for my mother. They do all kinds of things that are really, really wonderful. Um, I. I am so glad you brought up hospice and I and and there's a, a delicate issue um, question that I want to bring up, but I want to share this with you and the listening audience for 
years ago when I had more time in my schedule, I was a hospice volunteer. And um, I also um, went through some music thanatology training and um, found myself playing at the bedside of those that were transitioning, supporting the room, right? You support the one that's exiting, but you're also supporting the room. And I remember that um, I was, there was a woman and she was in kind of a, having difficulty breathing. And so the nursing staff had asked me if I could go play for her and the music would, you know, would bring her into a, the ability to do whatever. And the doctor came through when I was there and came in and he was like, what are you doing in here? And then I said, well, I'll show you what I'm doing. And so I started to play and um, he got real quiet and I turned around and he was crying. He said, I've never seen anything like this. And, it, and I'm bringing it forward because the hospice is a great organization and thanatology, the, the idea of um, those that can assist who really know what they're doing that one of my clients was talking the other day about, is there such a thing as a death doula, right? And these things are, I, I think we need to bring this back in in some fashion. But the question that I wanted to ask you, um, because I can, I can feel it from my listeners. When, when is that? When do we know when to go when to let it go? Because a lot of people do hang on to this idea that no, no, death is death is a mistake. You know, my people went to the hospital and they died and, and they didn't save their life, you know, and it's like, when do we make that transition when we say, okay, now, now it's time to do this in a loving, honoring way, they're going to take a journey. Um, such a great question. A um, couple of ways I'd like to ad address that. One is going back to who is I. Um, uh, it depends on how the person perceives um, life and death and how they um, experience themselves as a being. And for many people who are limited into the ego consciousness, it's like everything in them says, do everything for me, prolong my life as long as you can, I just do everything. And others um, who move into what's called the slow medicine movement, I'm sure you've heard of that, mm -hmm. which is so interesting because it's a consciousness that says, you know what, I recognize that we are all going to die. And I don't know, you know, this person, yes, we could do these 17 treatments, but is that for their best interest or does that bring them more pain and suffering that they could avoid if they didn't do those treatments so there's a cost benefit evaluation that has to be made um, i also think that it's critically important as much as possible to involve the person who's dying to let them be the spokesperson do not try and decide that on their behalf and as a caregiver especially you have to be really careful not to think that you know better than they do how they should die. If your loved one is dying and they say, I don't want any more treatments, respect that. And, and that's a great blessing when they do that. Um, and if on the other hand, they say, I want you to do absolutely everything, then you do absolutely everything, whether you agree or not. It is their dying, not yours. So I think that's a really important key to it. But it's a hard decision, it's, hard, it's a really yeah. hard decision. I know for myself at the end with my mother, um, there was a moment where uh, she seemed to be kind of going in and out of consciousness. And I must say she was sharp as a tack to the very end. 
And she was kind of go, drifting off and coming back. And her last coming back, she looked me right in the eyes and she said, I love you. And I said, I love you. She closed her eyes. And then for the next nine days, she was not communicating at all. And I remember sitting there day in and day out and day in and day out thinking, would she please hurry up and die? You know, it's a terrible thing to say, but I knew she was at the end. And then I kept reminding myself, yeah, but maybe her soul is busy doing some work here and I need to be patient because I struggle with impatience. So there are all kinds of lessons that are constantly being thrown our way in that process. But I think more than anything to honor as, as natural a process as possible, if that's what the patient wants. I love what you're saying about the fact that it is their death, not yours. Yeah. Yeah. But I would love for you to touch on the subject of grief and grieving. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Grief has a life of its own. And I think it's important to know that the dying person is involved in the grieving process of grieving the loss of their own life. And we as loved ones are grieving the loss of them. Um, grief is a huge um, experience for us all. And we don't have control over how it expresses. Um, I remember when my, when my mother died, having been so intimately involved, I didn't even shed a tear when she actually died because we had been going through this process. The process of letting go was happening all along. In contrast, when my father died and he and I had a very difficult relationship, I sobbed uncontrollably for two weeks straight. It was like this enormous tension in my life that released. And there was a freedom for me in that. I mean, I loved him, but I, I, we didn't get along, you know? So each grief process is enormously different. And nobody should ever try to tell another person how to grieve. It is a, um, a, a, a release that is happening through the person. And if anything, support them. In, in articulating what they need, you know. I, I will say also that one of the places that we're, we need to do a lot of work is in the human resources areas of corporations and, and, and work environments to understand how to work with grief. Um, there's a wonderful study that was done um, that I reference in, in the Grief Recovery Institute did. And um, one in 10 employees of companies is suffering grief of a major loss. It might be their cat that died, or it might be their mother. But, you know, even if it's your cat, you can't underestimate the impact that has on somebody, you know? And one in 10 people in the workplace is suffering from some kind of grief at any given time. And that makes us less able to function effectively. And so there's a tremendous need for compassion and sharing in the, the full range of the life experience, which includes grief. You know, I am thinking that, you know, a lot of people I talk to grieve the death of their pets almost yeah. more than people. And I, I think it really needs to be addressed. And also it brings up the issue of when, when do you let your pet go? Right, mm -hmm. you know, because that's a very difficult decision also for people. Well, yeah. it's usually different because we have different choices. You can quote, put your pet to sleep. You don't put your mother to sleep. 
you know? Um, and it's a very different experience. And um, the responsibilities and the choices are wildly different. And each of us has to go through it in our own process. What are some of the things, because you, like I, I'm telling people, this is really practical. What are some of the things that people can do in preparation for death that will make things go more smoothly? Great. One of the things, and this is, I think, the one up next to the last chapter is putting your ducks in a row before you go. Um, one of the, the, the things that happens with the death taboo is we tell ourselves, oh, I'm not old. I don't need to have a will. I don't need to do have a health care proxy. I don't need to do that. But 28% of us in the United States will die before we're 65. So nobody oh. is young to die. And it's really important that we read that part of this acceptance of our mortality is to accept responsibility to take care of ourselves and the, the what ifs. So all of the end of life preparation has to do with having a voice. If you don't do end of life preparation, and I'm talking about things like appointing somebody as a healthcare proxy who is a person who can speak on your behalf if you are unable to do so for yourself right. about what kind of medical treatments you want at the end of life. A will or, or, or a trust is about having a voice and saying, what happens to my money and my stuff? You know, do, is, is it important to me that so-and-so have this vase or this photograph or this pile of money? That is all important. If you don't have your voice by, by filling out legal documents, then it's left to the legalities of the state that you, that you reside in that makes those decisions for you. And it also burdens your loved ones into trying to second guess what you would want. I'm also thinking about wills and trusts and probate and all of this stuff that happens. Yeah. 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 One other thing I want to say that's on a softer note than the documentation is um, there's a chapter in the book that is, it is about reaping the treasures of your life. And um, I used to teach a, a memoir writing course in, for an oncology group, and it was such an interesting experience to help these people. It, you know, sometimes when we get sick, we're so focused on being sick that we forget about all the living that we've done. And it's really important to reap the harvest of the life that you've lived. A lot of people dismiss themselves and say, well, I haven't done anything interesting. I'm just an ordinary person. Ordinary is extraordinary. You know, you've walked on a beach and picked up shells. You've done all kinds of little things that touched your heart. And it, I think it's extremely important for us to document what, what, what has it been like being me? So that my and you know that my children and my children's children have a sense of who was that person, and I wonder how I'm like that person. What did I get from them? Um, I had so many people who started my course thinking that they had nothing to say, that ended up being the people whose writings we most look forward to hearing each week. You know, so harvest the treasures of your inner life. You know, that's, that's interesting. Um, I have a very large family and uh, the, the other, uh, last week, I think it was, people were wanting to know if anybody knew anything about my grandfather, right? Mm -hmm. 
And people are like, well, I've got this piece of information or I've got that one. And it came to mind when you were saying that, that if there would have been some sort of a documentation of that in some manner, we could all take a look at that and go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And with all our technology today, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you can create a little keynote address with images, with photographs and commentary about it. And the other thing is, I think it's really a good idea to let people know who you are from your point of view, rather than how you were perceived in the role that you had in somebody else's life and seen through their eyes, because none of us see each other the same way. And, mm -hmm. and it's about celebrating and sharing my own inner experience. This is who I am. Hi there. <laughs> um, I really like this because, you know, I do believe in, in continuing life, you know, reincarnation, and we've had many lives and so forth. But, you know, this is the only life I will be Loretta. This is the only life you will be Judith. And yeah. to honor and celebrate that, I think, is, is majorly important. Um, yeah, majorly important. So yeah. life after death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm thinking about different belief systems. I'm thinking about different cultures. Um, and we don't have time to totally explore that that idea. But is there life after death, Judith? And, and if there's life after death, and if there is death, and we face those straight on, how does that change how we live our life? Right. Well, <laughs> you're up two words here. I mean, first of all, we talked before about death. What is death? Is death simply the end of this physical mechanism that I live in? Or am I dead, done when my body stops? Is that all there is? What's okay. happening physiologically here? And, it, and for me, as I've said, I believe very strongly in our spiritual identity. And so for me, it's not life after death. It's life after life after life. <laughs> coming back and learning more and getting getting a new um you know it's it's like all the world's a stage right so now we're in a new drama you are loretta now but maybe next time you're going to be an alfred you know <laughs> maybe you're going to be a sheep herder somewhere who knows but i really believe that there is purpose and intention in the identity that we take on that has to do with being the best situation for us to work through certain karmic debts that we have that we've carried forward as souls and that what we're ultimately doing in my point of view is going home to the heart of God. And for me, what does that look like? It looks like getting beyond all of my judgments and my separation from others, get, raising to the spiritual level where we are, you all one work from the same ener energy field or the same uh, element, which is an energy, a vibrational level. And rather than the illusion that I am this person that you're looking at, you know, there's somebody inside here. <laughs> and the I that's in me is the I that's in you. And yet we're each taking a journey in a physical form and a physical identity. And I believe that we do that repeatedly until we work off all of the stuff, all of the illusions. This is a great planet of illusions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking too that it's great timing for your book. You know, we've we've been in the pandemic for a while and 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 death is right there in front of us, but we don't want to talk about it or we're scared of it or something. This is a really, really great book, um, Making Peace with Death and Dying. 
Um, my you. guest is Judith Johnson. Judith, what do you really hope people get from this book? Where do they find your book and where do they find you? Thanks for asking. You can find my book on, on any of the online platforms, Amazon, you know, uh, Barnes and Noble, et cetera, um, hopefully in your local bookstores. Um, it's actually pub, pub date January 11th, 2022. Um, and you can find me at judithjohnson.com. If you'd like to know more about my mentoring work, my end of life work, um, I have tons of um, blog posts that are archived there about consciousness, relationships, and end of life. And I'm a uh, email away just fill out the contact form on my on my website we're, we're almost to the end of the show we've got just a a, a couple of minutes uh, i'm thinking to myself and we already touched on this but fear you know the mm -hmm. the deep fear that people have right now like people are running around like in hyper vigilant mode oh you know what about this what about that and and it's almost like they're running from death <laughs> what can you say that will help people when we're in fear, first of all, fear is, uh, is fantasy expectations appearing real, okay? And if you think about it that way, or false evidence appearing real. And so it's an illusion that we've created in our mind. And when we create an illusion in our mind we, that is fear, we go into contraction and it's like, <gasps> we stop breathing. So it's like, you know, we, we run away from and we try to pull away from rather than breathing into and saying, whoa, I'm not looking forward to this one, but here it is, you know, and we have to breathe into all of life all the way through to the end, because if you can open to it, there's an amazing, amazing experiences. It's like with my mother's death, there was such love and don't be afraid to, you know, don't be afraid of pain and suffering. It's a normal part of life. Breathe into it. It's not necessarily going to be enjoyable, but you're likely to reap some wonderful benefits and lessons from it. Wow. Um, I love that. Um, I'm always telling that to people when we're in that contracted state, we're losing connection with our with ourselves, but it is the breath. It's like, yep. just exhale, let it go, open yourself up to what is here and and yeah i'm with you it, it life and death are all part of the great cycles that we live in so wow thank you so much for being on the show this is loretta brown my guest judith johnson making peace with death and dying a practical guide to liberating ourselves from the death taboo and just go get it right now thank you so much thank my you benny first. yep thank you lots of love and uh Happy New Year to everybody. We'll talk to you next time.